Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it? Oh gosh, well, it's 2022 and sadly everyone's child will encounter transgender ideology. It's no longer a matter of if but when. Perhaps you've seen what's going on in schools and in the media and want to be able to talk to the children in your life about it preventatively, but don't know where to start. Maybe you don't even have children, but you've noticed that all kids seem to be learning in school these days is what the letters LGBTQI++ stand for. Maybe you want to do something about it because you simply care about the future of humanity. Now, we know the stakes are high. We're not just talking about this ending with new pronouns and a new name. We're talking the permanent dismembering of a child's intact and perfect body. We're talking about organ damage and a lifetime of negative side effects from the wrong sex hormones. And that's just the beginning. Mary Lou Singleton and I will be hosting a masterclass for parents and concerned citizens on how to effectively protect your child from this anti-human, anti-woman, pharma-funded ideology. This masterclass is for you if you care deeply about safeguarding the minds and bodies of our children against a predatory ideology and medical industry. If you're sick of hearing the party lines that a child can be born in the wrong body or assigned the wrong sex at birth, if you've been told that social transition isn't a big deal, Mary Lou and I are here to remind you that you are not 
crazy. We can resist this by taking a firm stance against the pharmaceutical drug industry that is preying upon our children. So if you're a parent and you're sick of being told that you're not the authority on your child and that you are even transphobic for questioning your child's desires and demands, you have come to the right place. In our upcoming masterclass, you'll gain clarity on the harms of, quote, gender medicine, have your concerns validated, and gain the confidence to protect our children with compassion, discernment, and consciousness. The masterclass will be hosted on Zoom on November 10th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Now, if you're in Europe or Australia or in Africa or Asia and the time doesn't make sense for you, you will get access to the replay. So whether or not you can join us live the following day, you will get a link that gives you access to the masterclass through November 2024. You can secure the early bird price of $99 now through November 11th. All that information is linked in the episode show notes. Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Kaisa Ekis Ekman writes on feminism, economics, and political theory from a dialectical materialist framework. When Kaisa first felt called to write about prostitution, she quickly realized that the same arguments used to defend commercial sex were being used to defend surrogacy. Kaisa notes that prostitution is where you sell sex without reproduction, and surrogacy is where you sell reproduction without sex. And in both cases, the woman being sold does not get to enjoy either sex or reproduction. Sex work apologists will claim that radical feminists don't talk to sex workers, but Ekman certainly did for her book, Being and Being Bought, published in 2013. What she found was that it's not a job like any other, that 98% of people selling sex are women, and that they have a mortality rate 40 times higher than women not in prostitution. She found that sex work advocacy groups and unions were, for the most part, fake organizations established to protect commerce, not women. So with such grim statistics, why aren't more politicians and advocates invested in the Nordic model, which criminalizes sex buyers? In today's podcast, we explore the patriarchal desires driving prostitution, surrogacy, and transgender ideology. We also discuss unfriendings, getting canceled, and how we can resist the global-scale colonization of women. Kaisa, I'm so glad we're finally speaking. I'm so excited for this episode. I'm I have your book, your first book, Being and Being Bought in my hands. And I reread the first chapter, getting ready to speak to you again. And it's just so potent and Gosh, I can't wait to dive in. So would you just start off by talking a little bit about how you started researching prostitution? Mm, First of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. You've had so many cool guests. Well, like why I started writing about prostitution was because like initially the book was just going to be about prostitution, right? And then as I was writing, I understood that surrogacy was like 
starting to be legalized in, in a lot of countries and it was starting to be like uh, defended with the same arguments. Mm. So it was like a parallel or like the other side of the coin to prostitution, you know, whereas like prostitution is you sell um, sex with no um, like no reproduction, like surrogacy is you sell reproduction with no sex. So it's like the old archetypes of like the whore and the Madonna both turned into capitalist industries where women are exploited in different ways. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, the arguments that were used to defend it were the same, like, oh, there are some people that like it. Oh, at least, you know, the poor people get money, you know, and this is really needed. Like they're doing a service to other people, you know, uh, basically both industries are about women whose role is to give to other people, like not receive anything you know, a couple of coins, but, you know, the main thing is that they're givers, like they don't get anything from, you know, the basic things of life, which are like sex and reproduction. Like, basically, that's why you would have sex, either to enjoy it or to have children. And in these industries, like these women don't get neither, like they don't get to enjoy it, they don't get to have the children that they're like actually carrying. Uh, because both of these very fundamental facts of life end up being for other people. So why did I start with prostitution? It was because theory and practice like came together in my life. I was living at the time in, in Barcelona and I was sharing an apartment with a woman who was um, um, like selling herself on the highway. And she had this guy who was sort of like her boyfriend and also her pimp. Um, I didn't realize at first because he said what he was doing for a living was robbing banks. And I was like, wow that's cool. And then I realized he wasn't robbing any banks. Like he was just basically at home all the time or at the internet cafe. So I was like, when would he rob banks? You know, and he never came home with like lots of money or anything. So I was like, okay, well, that's just a lie, you know, but it's an impressive lie. So, um, so I realized he was living off of her and not only was he living off of her, but you know, his brother who was in prison and needed a good lawyer was also depending on the money that she would you know, sent for that lawyer. She also had a son in, in Russia where she was from, who was like, she was hoping to get back with him. And there was like all, all sorts of people. And she was hoping to stop this prostitution life in order for her to like have a normal life and have a big house, reunite her family. And her way of doing so was trying to get other girls from Eastern Europe to replace her mm. and live off of them. So I remember one time when they came home and they were so angry because these girls had been stopped at the border for some reason they weren't allowed in she was so angry like because she'd spent money on their trip and everything so and then like she ended up passing away like when she was 30 something so and the sad thing was i don't think she had papers or they didn't find her papers or something so they put her in this like they call it like a fossa common which is like a grave where they put lots of people or like they don't have a name Wow. Um, I don't know if they put lots of people in the same or they just put it in like an anonymous place, but like it's if they don't know the name of a person or something. So I just thought of like how many women are there that just like kind of disappear that way and nobody really knows where they end up at the kind of at the same time there was this debate starting like whether prostitution was work and somehow this idea seduced lots of like feminists who thought Oh, wow. Like, actually, prostitutes are, like, real strong women who are, like, empowered. They're so cool. You know, just, like, in their head, thinking about it, like, 
the way it would be, you know, like not really seeing it the way it was. So when I just thought, oh, this idea is such bullshit, I'm going to have to like write about it. So it was like theory and practice. So I sat down and I read like everything I could get my hands on about the subject for like four years. I just went to like all the libraries I could get a hold of on Amazon, like just anything with prostitution. <laughs> just read everything, everything, everything. Really interesting. Um, and my blood was boiling because there were all these, for some reason, uh, in ac academia, the people who defend prostitution tend to be anthropologists and the people who defend surrogacy tend to be philosophers. Mm. I don't know why. So there was all these anthropologists who'd gone to like Thailand and explained that, you know, uh, child prostitutes in Thailand are not victims, but like active subjects who take control of their own life and actually exercise choice. You know, um, and I thought, you know, this is just so cynical and my blood was boiling because they had their books and their books were like at libraries everywhere and people were reading this stuff and maybe believing it. And there was with just my anger, you know, but now I have a book. So <laughs> that's the power <laughs> of writing. Like you just calm down, you collect your thoughts, you make sure your footnotes are in order and then you have a book. It's, it's wild how much you pack in in such a concise way in your book. I mean, it's a very like lightweight, like it's not like a textbook, like mm -hmm. even from, I remember, I remember just reading the first few pages of being and being bought and just like one of those, like pacing around my apartments day, just like, couldn't like each sentence was so potent. I mean, so much of what you shared just initially now, um, the kind of nuggets, what you said about um, uh, prostitution is um, sex without reproduction, surrogacy is reproduction without sex. I mean, even mm -hmm. that is just, wow, like truth bomb, mind blown. I mean, for most, at least like, you know, me six years ago, you know, the all of the the kind of the, the lib fam leftist femmes that I'm kind of um, now totally apart from, mm -hmm. I mean, to have heard that truth. So so what year was this when you were, you know, had this roommate who, you know, sounds like tragically died? Um, this was in 2006. Okay. So my book came out in 2010. So that was the four years mm. that I spent writing it. And I, it took so long also because it was my first book. So basically the structure is what takes so long. What, what to put where? you know, like you have your thoughts, but how to organize them in a way that like the reader will follow from, you know, zero, one, two, three, and so on to get mm -hmm. like more and more complicated the way you go, mm -hmm. not to start with like all this, you know, academic stuff that people will just, you know, disregard. So, right. you know, and this is really important when you speak about things like prostitution, because that's so much a reality thing. You know, I guess there are some things that you can actually understand while sitting in your home reading books, but prostitution, I don't think is one of them. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a thing that you actually have to see as well, because you don't understand how bad it is until you've seen it. And, you know, there are things that like, you don't understand unless you spent a lot of time with, with people, like, mm -hmm. unless you see, you can, you can interview a person, you know, when I was in Spain, I was um, sending out like. Um, questions to people who had ads at that time there was like prostitution ads in the newspapers so I would start with the ones that said Swedish girl now when I call them it turns out nobody spoke Swedish like they weren't Swedish they just said that in order to like you know attract you know buyers whatever so then I would just send out like hi do you want to talk do you want to talk do you want to talk um, 
and not really a lot of people wanted to talk. Then when I said, you know, oh, like I've heard that you have something to say, then everybody wanted to talk for some reason. <laughs> it's and, a, it's like it's like a, a hypnosis technique. Like you're implanting the suggestion that they already want to speak before they've said that they want to speak. So like the entry, it's like a it's like a positive suggestion. Yeah, and it's also telling them that you know, um, like I've selected you for a certain reason, not just right. anyone. Right. So, and then a lot of people would say, yeah, I have this life. Like I'm just surviving. Like I'm just doing this really trying to keep their head above water. But then if you like would meet the people like year after year, they would get boyfriends, you know, they would maybe have a family Mm -hmm. and to always be so scared that that life would come back. Always be scared. Like always telling me, don't use that old name when you talk to me, because if you use that old name, they're going to ask, why are you using that name? Like, why are you like talking to her like this? And then that would be the name she would have back then. So like always scared that this would surge because I don't think there is anyone of all the men who defend prostitution, like, oh, you know, women can do it if they like. I don't think there's anyone who would bring a girl home to their parents and say, oh, I'm going to, this is my new girlfriend. Like we might actually start a family. What's your job? Oh, I'm a sex worker. Like with a straight face. Like maybe somebody who's living really on the edge of life, but most of them, normal citizen guys, like they just wouldn't do that. And nobody thinks that these girls are going to have a future. You cannot really be a prostitute when you're like 50, 60, 70, right? Right. You don't really retire. So what's your life going to be like afterwards if you manage to survive and get out? Mm -hmm. How are your relationships going to be? Nobody thinks about that. They're just in the eternal now. I imagine because of the sexualization and because their um, their value is based so much on youth, like how youthful can they appear that there's this kind of frozen identity as your youthful, you know, young, underage self, because that's what that's what sells. It's like a, a kind of a stunting. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, like the thing is just that society doesn't talk about prostitution the same way. Like even society, the society that pretends that it's a job doesn't talk about it the same way they talk about jobs. Because when you talk about like jobs that involve a lot of hardship, like miners or, you know, whatever, like construction workers, you do talk about how how the body feels after a life working in that. Like how is retirement? When should you retire? Like what are the hazards? Like you do talk about the whole of, of, of that worker's life. Like you do see him as a person in a sense, like what's the risk of death. Uh, but it's, it's interesting because the people that do say that they see prostitution as work never talk about it the way they talk about other jobs. And, and there's, you know, like they never talk about like how she can retire. When, when should a prostitute retire? Like, what is that? Like, you know, normal age. You know, if, if they would understand that the mortality is like 40 times higher in prostitution than for other women, they would immediately start, you know, sounding the alarm as they do with other jobs. But it's like the people that talk about it as a job only do it to kind of defend it, not to mm-hmm. actually see it as if it were a job. And, and in prostitution, there's all these weird things like there, there's all these like discrepancies that don't go together in the defense of it. Like the people that say oh, I think it's just a private thing between two consenting adults, right? 
And at the same time, they want it legalized as an industry. Obviously, an industry is something that's public. It's not something private, Mm. you know? Um, So it's really weird. Like the people that use this feminist rhetoric about prostitution, like, you know, oh, prostitution um, is a woman taking control of her own sexuality, you know? they forget the counterpart, which is so central to feminism, namely the male. Feminism is built on the position between, you know, male and female, who oppresses who. And all of a sudden you have the feminist rhetoric without mentioning the male and his role, Mm. which is very strange. So there's all these borrowing and kidnapping of like central terms from different ideologies, Mm -hmm. such as socialism, feminism, like gay rights movement, in order to make this seem like it's good. But if you do go deeper, like it doesn't really hold together. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's yeah. That resonates. I mean, with the trans stuff, we know there's a lot of borrowing and appropriating to legitimize something that isn't like real, let alone like good. Mm-hmm. Um, will you, will you maybe uh, speak to the, the, the language we're talking about borrowing um, kind of concepts and ideas or, or um, social movements, but will you speak to the shift from uh, prostitute, the language shift from prostitution to sex work and, and the purpose and the function of that? Well, like prostitute has gotten kind of a bad ring because it sounds so miserable. You know, it doesn't sound like a happy thing. Like you'd say maybe the happy hooker, but you don't say like the happy prostitute, you know, it just sounds bad. It just sounds like a dark alley where people are being killed, you know, but like sex worker, it basically combines like two things from like 60s feminism and socialism, which is the right to work and the right to your own sexuality. So you combine these things. What do you get? Well, sex work. Wow. Right. So you have like everything that feminists always wanted. Together, you get to be a prostitute. Oh my you know? god! <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it sounds nice. You know, it sounds like kind of like respectable. Mm-hmm. I understand that in countries where like, you know, women in prostitution are just put down, like you're just a scum, like you're just down here, like sex worker sounds kind of like, well, I'm something. Mm. You know, but um, it's just false. Like nobody sees it that way. Like nobody really sees it that way. It's like I'm writing in the book that I talked to this woman who was really insightful, who said, well, you know, sex work would be if you could be anyone, you wouldn't be involved. Like you could be a big fat guy. You would just jerk people off. It would just be a job. Like, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter who does the job because it's just a service. Right. But if he reaches out and touches you, then you are involved. If he wants you to look a certain way, you know, he, he, like, he's involving your feelings, you know, then of course it's not a service. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like she said, it's like a chef makes the food. A chef doesn't have to eat the food. A chef might be vegetarian, but he might still like, you know, make meat for the customers. Right. But this is like, if the chef would have to sit down and eat with the customers and say, it's the greatest food and blah, blah, blah. And like fake it. And like, say he loves meat, although he hates it. Like, so prostitution is one big lie. Mm. It's a lie from like the beginning to the end. I love your chapter. The, this, the, uh, I don't know if it was a chapter, the, the buyer's delusion. 
Yeah. Will, will you speak? Will you kind of say more more to that? I mean, you, you mentioned the absence of the male and in, in the debates, it's all about are women choosing this? Is this entrepreneurship uh, pitting? You know, you talk about pitting, um, quote, sex workers against feminists or sex mm-hmm. workers against uh, the the religious uh, religious institutions, Christianity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, will you speak to the 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 buyers that you, you said the lie? I love that. It was just a big lie. Um, Will you speak to the buyer's the buyer's delusion and kind of the male component there? Yeah, because you know when he says that he wants prostitution to be legalized and he wants you know sex to become work, he wants it that way because he wants it to be there for him when he wants it. But like the moment that he's paid, you know, he wants her to suddenly transform into like a lover, somebody's actually interested in him. Like, if she's acting like a worker, if she's just like, okay, when are you done? Like, looking at her phone, you know, while he's doing it. Like, he doesn't like it. She gets bad reviews online. So she has to pretend that he's a great lover. You know, because he actually wants it to transform into, like, somehow a meeting. And, you know, of course, then there's taste, you know, there's some guys who actually want her to show like emotion and like him. There are some who want to inflict pain. So they want her to show that she feels pain. None of that is included in any job. The feelings of the worker shouldn't be included. Like she should just be able to act like a robot, but that's not really what they want. So like they want sex to be work, but they actually want her to like make him forget that he is buying sex make him forget that this is prostitution like that's her job he should feel like he just had a sex act forget that he paid for it forget that she actually doesn't want him to be there because if prostitution is like if you can just define it by any word it's like a dick in a place that doesn't want it to be there oh my gosh yeah, but it is if you think it's about totally, it. It's totally that. No, I'm I'm like blown away by your clarity. Of course, that's what it is. I've yeah, never it's always heard that. It. It's always a dick going where it's not welcome. Oh my! Oh yeah, I mean, I've heard like the it's paid rape. Like I've heard all sorts yeah. of things, but I've never heard it phrased that way. Oh my gosh, that's gonna stick with me forever. Wow. Yeah, but it is, and it's like, man, if you think about it, it's like the only form of doing that that's legal in so many countries because anywhere where that dick would go and it wouldn't be invited would be like, yeah, it would be rape or harassment or, you know, whatever, like different types of crimes. Right. But now because he's paying, like it's okay. But I think that the payment is the proof that it's not wanted because otherwise, like, why would she charge? Like if she wanted it. So, I mean, that would be like, Oh, you're raping somebody and you have like, you know, a ticket to prove it. You actually paid. Well, that's what it means. Right. Because if both parties actually wanted to do it, if it were consensual, there would be no exchange of money. Of course. I don't know. But like if you go to a bar and you meet a guy that you really like or a girl or whatever, like and you're like, hi, do you want to come to my house? And the person was like, yeah, but give me like 100 bucks. I mean, you'd be like, but why? I mean, you wouldn't be like, yeah, of course. I mean, you would think like, oh, you don't want this. You know what right. I mean? So it's still like a proof that you don't actually want that person. Wow. It's so nuts. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the craziest thing is like, how can socialists, out of all people, defend mm-hmm. this? Like in Sweden, they don't. Like in Sweden, socialists are against prostitution. But I know that in like the US and the UK, like mm-hmm. for some reason, they think that this is like an acceptable thought. How do they back that opinion? What what do they usually say? Yeah, well, they say the usual stuff like, oh, it's work like any other. Like, if you don't think so, you're moralist. Like, you have to listen to sex workers. Okay. Like, oh, like, yeah, making it illegal just makes it go underground and it's a lot worse. And yeah, the usual stuff. Okay. Okay. So nothing like nothing specific to like coming out of a socialist lens. It's just the same. Yeah. I mean, I guess they say that like in the future, whatever, like when socialism comes, like we're going to abolish all types of jobs. But first, we have to make everything a job. Like, I don't know. You know, socialism is about like de objectifying and de reifying things. So that means that you would take things out of the market. Like, socialists, we want, you know, housing not to be on the market. We want, you know, um, like water not to be on the market, schools, health, whatever, like not to be on the market. Like, we want to take things away from the market. So we should want the same thing with sex. It shouldn't be in the market. It should be, you know, something that we do because we like it but for some reason they make that exception that because it's women that are sold then it's okay i guess because they think it's kind of cool or something maybe it's so trivial like the actual reason like the fringe they they think it's some kind of like fringe or cool yeah edgy yeah i mean i've thought about i've thought about this like i went to an art school conservatory for university and a lot i knew a number of women um, who came from like middle class, upper middle class households that went on to be prostitutes and who like it was all masked as performance art. And, okay. uh, you know, there's there's something um, there's something about pushing the boundaries like as an artist mm-hmm. or as a performer that seems to include you know, body modification, of course, mm-hmm. like all the the trans nonsense, um, prostitution, um, like getting involved in like high risk behavior, like whether and it used to just right, be like right, drugs right. and alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something. <laughs> yeah, I think drugs. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's like and then like, oh, everybody does that. Mm, what can I do that not everyone does? Mm. Yeah. Be prostitute, but how do I do it without actually having to be a prostitute? Hmm. I can like do some burlesque art or something. Hmm. <laughs> you can like hear them thinking out loud. But what I want to ask you is do these people stay in prostitution or do they do it like for half a year and then like go on and talk all over the internet about how they have experience of this? Or do they actually stay in there? I I don't think they stayed. I think it functioned to build like skyrocket an audience you know online Uh, mm -hmm. you know and it's really tempting to post naked photos in any capacity like online like I see it within the wellness industry and like the yoga industry and like any any opportunity to kind of like wiggle you know and I'm not saying that all like women's bodies shouldn't be shown like I I love I love a good birth photo. I love a good, you know, photo, beautiful artistic photo of a woman like at a waterfall. Like I I, obviously there's beauty in that. And we know that because of the society that we live in, the pornified, you know, culture that we live in, we are rewarded for 
posting naked photos. And I think um, being on the edge is also like not knowing what its use is for. Like that's yeah, like yeah, yeah. my experience as the as the viewer looking like when I think of those women's social media accounts. Um, it's right on that the the edge of you know fashion shoots performance mm. art um, photos that will be monetized you know for men to buy. Um, there's something about the ambiguity of not knowing kind of what it's used for that I think people find. But do you mean also- like, do they have OnlyFans or do you mean just posting pictures and that's it? Or do they some of them sell? Were, some, so some of them sold the photos. Some of them were escorts. Some of them had OnlyFans pages, kind of every every combination. Mm. Um, and then also, I mean, I there was also an overlap. in. I mean, I, I trained as a doula in New York City and I knew a number of doulas who were also in the sex industry. Oh, wow. What were they doing in there? They were having sex with men. But like on a daily basis or it was just like for art? It it wasn't like destitution prostitution. No, it was it was like money. It was like a money making thing. And it would generally be like friends or friends of friends. So they kept the network, I guess, the pool warm, I guess you could say, um, in some respects. Not that that necessarily would make it any safer or I, I really don't know um but i that was again there's something about like taking your body to like these extremes or being in these high risk situations but i will make the distinction that i did not know women who were attending ecstatic powerful like autonomous births who were then also mm-hmm. in prostitution it was almost right. always women who were super attached to the medical model of birth uh, mm. definitely pro surrogacy, uh, definitely pro trans. So that, yeah, I can make all that goes together somehow. Exactly. Because what I'm thinking about is this, like, I know, like, first of all, I think it has to do with the fact that prostitution is a lot more like present in, in American society than here. Mm. Like I remember when I was 21 and I was traveling in the States, like you would meet men who would like suggest that you become a prostitute or like that you would sell sex or or pimps there would be actual pimps around like here even before the law on on like that that um prohibit like the purchase of sexual services like we never had that we never had prostitution like being present in society in that way mm-hmm. you know what i mean so you don't really encounter it like it, it would be there somewhere maybe but it's not something that like is everywhere so i think it has to do with that but also like I'm interested to know whether, because I know that it can be so that a lot of people might be seduced by the idea of prostitution being somehow edgy and cool. And then it might give you kind of like social capital to build Mm. on as, as a writer or as an artist or something. But I wonder like, do people stay in it who enter it for those reasons? I would think maybe two cases, either they actually get out really fast and then just build on it, Mm -hmm. but they didn't actually like it. or they might actually get stuck. Some people get stuck. Mm-hmm. And Some a lot of, of people had... who get stuck might be traumatized already. And, you know, right. they might find an outlet there that doesn't have to do with art, mm-hmm. but that they're already like victims of, you know, incest or something, and then go mm-hmm. on to like try to control it through prostitution, which is very common. Some of them had babies. Now that I think about it, some of them actually had babies, which is maybe why they stopped too. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, the social reward. Well, I wonder yeah. if it also has to do with the... There's like the intrigue with, you know, maybe there's an intrigue as, you know, like society or they're they're getting lots of attention because of what you describe as the split self. 
Like there's Mm -hmm. like you see the woman that you're with and you're talking to her, but then, you know, also that she has this this other life, this kind of underground, this this uh, illegal, uh, depending on where you are, you know, um, view of the world. And she's seeing sides of society that uh, someone who isn't like in that industry isn't seeing like there's a lot of darkness there's a lot of evil i mean there are lots of ways to see darkness and evil and disembodiment in this world but that there's a particular kind of um yeah i wonder if there's a particular kind of um intrigue there it's the it's the the curiosity but also the avoidance like there's the intrigue but also the the judgment like it's it's um um, both. Will you will you talk about the concept of of the split self that you that you know it's on the um it's on the cover of your book? Will you, yeah, will you kind of talk yeah. about what that is? Yeah, it's definitely like a key concept of my book, which is like both practical and theoretical. It's when I noticed, like I noticed first of all that the discourse around prostitution has changed. That they used to say when it was legalized like 100 years ago, 120 years ago, when they had this like reglementation system that, you know, like there were brothels that were kind of like state owned or owned by the city. Women would have to go up there and like register and they weren't allowed to like, you know, practice without having STD checks and so on. So it used to be defended by this like, you know, drainage model or sewage model, which was like they women who were prostitutes had like fallen. You know, they were fallen women. So, but the more they fell, the more they served society because society wouldn't function unless these women channeled all the dark desires of the male. Then males would go around and rape innocent women. Wives wouldn't be able to like handle all these desires that males had. And then, you know, prostitution was outlawed. And then when it came back again, in like the 80s, 90s, with the onset of trafficking, globalization, you know, capitalism going wild, all that big inequalities, then you can't really use the same type of discourse around it. So the discourse changed. And the discourse now was, no, she's not fallen. She's empowered. She's up here. She's a role model. She's more, you know, feminist than other women. Like, look at her. So it was like trying to elevate her instead of saying she's down, they were saying she's up. But then again, of course, there is like a kind of discrepancy here because what is she selling? Then they said, no, she's not selling herself. She's just selling her body. No, she's not selling her body. She's selling sex. No, she's not selling sex. She's selling a sexual service. And that's just something over there. As if, you know, I would be here being empowered and then, you know, the services would be like going on on their own somewhere without me being present, mm-hmm. which obviously can't happen. Because as I said, you know, selling sex is you have a dick inside you, man, you're really there. Like you can't be anywhere else. Um, you can't even do it on Zoom. Like you really have to be there if it's going to be prostitution. So that means that like the discourse is split. You know, they're saying she's empowered, but she's selling you know, her body, which is an object. So the body is everything that she's not. The body doesn't have a choice. The body might say, I don't want this. You know, the vagina might be dry. Your body might really like shudder. Like, I don't like this guy. You don't like his smell. You know when you don't like someone. But then this empowered person tells the body, no, you go and do this. So the body becomes kind of like owned by the person, the empowered person if you will. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about this discourse is it's so manipulative because it really fits so well into the actual 
defense mechanism that women in prostitution have used for so long. I don't think women ever like to say I'm a fallen woman. Oh my God, I'm so low. Nobody wants to feel that. But if they say you're empowered, you're so cool. Mm, you know, you might like that. But the interesting thing is that women in prostitution for so long and in different countries without speaking to each other have um, used this way of, of dissociating during the act, which, you know, victims of rape, for instance, also do, which is saying like, I'm not here. This is not happening to me. You're thinking about something else. Maybe use a different name for him not to use your name during the act. Maybe use drugs so you're kind of numb. You have body parts that you say like, oh, he can't, you know, kiss me or touch my hair or touch my ears or like it used to be a real central thing about prostitution that there were some things you didn't do because mm -hmm. it wasn't love. It was just prostitution. So that split self, that kind of split um, is kind of like mirroring the defense of prostitution today, you see. So when they're saying, oh, she's empowered, she's up here. Um, she's just selling her body. That's not her. They're like actually idealizing her trauma, her dissociation, mm. what she has to do every day. And this is extremely dangerous because they're cheering on. Sexuality shouldn't be that way. Sexuality should be your present. You're there. You're enjoying it. You're looking him in the eyes. You're actually kind of, you know, uniting with a person. But, you know, prostitution is not that type of sex. Prostitution is like, you have two people, they're so close, you think they're doing the same thing, but you know, one is there to enjoy it. He's having an orgasm, it's his free time. She's there to work, she doesn't feel it, but she's pretending that she feels it. You know, nothing could be more unequal. They're not in the same world. And you wonder, man, like also these guys who learn to think that this is good sex. Like who learn to think that this is good sex with a woman who's not enjoying it. Like, are they able to tell how a woman's body functions? What are the signs when she likes having sex? Because if they knew, they must understand that this person is not enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, it, it veers into the, the necrophilia, you know, like, why <laughs> do you like having sex with someone or something that has no agency yeah why i mean that's she might as well be unconscious and sometimes she will be or you you it yeah. might as well be a robot it might as well be a doll yeah which we know is a thing yeah yeah but oh, even wow. if she's moving you know she's moving in this fake way she's not feeling it right and he should be able to tell, but maybe his girlfriend's faking it too. Maybe everybody who's having sex with him is faking it because he's no good. Nobody will tell him, especially not the prostitute. Right. Because he's paying for her not to tell him. So how is he ever going to find out that he's bad in bed? Because women are so polite too. Like even if they're not paid, they won't tell him <laughs> because they're like, oh, he might feel bad about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so nuts. Oh my gosh. I really appreciate your clarity and framing of, of all of this and all the inversions. I mean, you talk about the other inversion, like it used to be the prostitute against the church and now it's the prostitute or the sex worker against the angry feminist. You angry talk about feminist. how, right. Yeah. Like feminism has radical feminism has taken on the negative characteristics of the church in the eyes <laughs> yeah, of the pro-sex they I, love I, that. It makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, See, they're pitting I mean, like feminists against sex workers. Like, mm -hmm. 
I mean, now they invented this term about swerfs and whatnot. And the, th the interesting thing is when I wrote my book, that was still doable because the survivors movement hadn't come along. So when I would go to conferences about prostitution, like back in 2009, 2010, you know, if you, if you saw like the organizations that were like representing prostitutes, they were all like social workers, academics, lawyers, you know, there was no women in prostitution there. Like, especially this like Dutch organization that was like always a part of any book about sexuality was like, and in Holland, the prostitutes have their own union and which is called the red thread and it organizes prostitutes. Okay, bullshit. Whenever you saw them at a conference, there would be like some social worker who spoke for them. Mm. You see? So the prostitutes themselves were nowhere. And when I asked them like, do you even have members? Ah, uh, mm, yeah, we have maybe hundred members. Okay, but you never saw them anywhere. So it was basically a fake organization that the government of Holland had founded in order to prepare the re-legalization of prostitution. So to say, oh, we have brothels, but we also have a union. So, but this was always funded by the state. It wasn't an independent organization. But then along came, you know, the survivors movement. And you had people like Rachel Morin and Hushke Mao in Germany, Amelia Tiganos in Spain. You had in France, you had who was walking on foot all across the country to like try to um, campaign for an abolitionist law. So you had this whole movement coming up. And I don't think now you can say these things anymore. And I think the same thing is happening with the gender identity question. Like everybody was saying, listen to the sex workers. Then came out the survivors of prostitution who told about the horrors of, of the sex industry. All of a sudden, no, you wouldn't listen to them. And it's the same thing with the gender identity. They were saying, listen to trans people. Oh, now came the D-trans. No, we won't listen to them. It's like the same thing. It's the same parallel. Like apparently they just want to listen to people with their own opinion. It's not like they actually care about people who have experience. Mm. And that's the very thing they accuse rad femmes of. Oh, well, you're, you don't talk to sex workers. You don't know sex workers. You don't, you know, you're, you know, you're um, being um, patronizing to, mm -hmm. to women in the sex industry. And those are the, you know, then they, they turn it around as if it's something that we're somehow inflicting on on sex workers. I mean, even to compare the mortality, I mean, I mean, th it's just wild when you, when you, when you, when you get, when you share a stat, like the mortality of, of, of a woman in, this, in prostitution, 40 times higher than just a, a woman who's not in prostitution. And then you consider that pro-prostitution feminists are accusing us of trying to hurt sex workers it's just like yeah, mind-boggling yeah. and it's like that yeah. it's it's like the absence of the male again exactly what you talk about like you know i appreciated the um the question i think my, my friend serendipity said this to me it was the first one who said this to me you know when she would get into debates around legalizing prostitution or surrogacy she would say i'm less interested in talking about who can sell their body who has the right to sell their body versus who has the right to buy the the rights yeah. to the insides yeah. of women yeah and I just love that that turnaround because it totally flips it on. on yeah, the well, that's, that's what like the Nordic model or, or right. I don't know what you call it, the equality model, um, we call it there is about. It's about, mm -hmm. you know, punishing all sex crimes. Yeah. You know, even if you pay, it's still a sex crime because it's unwanted sex. 
Right. And, um, and I think, I think it's really interesting because that position to say, oh, you have to listen to so-and-so it's so dishonest because first of all, it's pretending that you don't have a position that you don't already have an opinion. We all know you have an opinion. I have an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. So either like come out as the person that you are and state for yourself. I have an opinion, whether that opinion is, I think that women should be sold and bought. Okay. Why? Tell me, you know, or I think, for example, that sex or gender is something that is in the head, has nothing to do with the body. It's completely unrelated to the body. If that's your opinion, okay, argue why. But to say, like, you should listen to is like abdicating from your own responsibility of like being an intellectual or being a person who has opinions. So it's like pretending that you're just a person with two ears and no mouth, like you're just listening. But then you don't listen because then when survivors come out or like detransitioners come out, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, like they don't listen. And that's the thing. Like when you look at survivors organizations and, you know, the way they're trying to be heard, they have their Twitter accounts, they have their websites, they make their conferences. I don't see any of those like prostitution debaters who love sex work even go there or like follow them or listen at all. So if you don't agree, then just say, I don't agree. I'm not of that opinion. I don't listen. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But don't use the argument that you listen to people because also it makes you look like you're some kind of king that's sitting on a throne and that's like, I'm listening to my subjects here. Right. Oh my gosh. It's such a cop-out. It's cowardly and it's a cop-out. And it's exactly what actually I was instructed to do as a woman who was going supporting women in birth like in mm. the mainstream doula world that's exactly what they tell you to do they say like leave all judgment at the door um it's not your choice it's her choice mm. and that it, that includes if you're witnessing her getting abused she's mm. the one who chose the hospital birth so don't say anything or or okay. help her help her reframe uh right. what happened after to only see it in a positive light and anything oh, really? oh yeah oh yeah well, like, that's not so good be a wallflower. Oh yeah, it was wild. But it's again, it's all connected. It's all just enabling the system. I mean, I think about like what if like it doesn't I, I haven't like thought this whole through, but uh I mean I, I have uh, my friend Emily Saldea who runs the Freebird Society, um, with described, you know, her experiences serving women in the system as like holding women while they were being raped. Like you know what the doctor but does. She's talking about giving birth now or in like birthing, birthing with a, a medical provider who, you know, has a history of doing things to women against their consent. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Cause there's already that power dynamic, right. It can never be equal, you know, having informed consent when you're in someone else's house or in an institution where there's already an established power dynamic, like how could that even be a choice? How, how could there even be an informed consent? And she described it as, you know, like she had to stop because she got sick of holding women's hands as they got raped. And I had, I had a really similar experience, which is why I stopped going into the system, but I'm I'm just hearing so many parallels that I never really made connections to with the, um, with the bystander. I mean, I think we're, we're talking about, okay, what is the, what is the, um, someone who isn't necessarily buying sex or, um, a prostitute, you know, mm. what is their role in talking about mm. this issue? And uh, what you're saying is, you know, it's, it's a fallacy to think that we don't have like, pre- we're, we're like programmed with judgment and 
you know, and the idea that that our ultimate like enlightenment is to release all judgment or to be, you know, neutral or, you know, is it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And, it, yeah, and, it, and you, even even if it was so like, I guess. I can see where they're coming from telling you going to room don't judge because you don't know that person you don't know how they feel whatever like okay fine but then i mean really don't judge either way right but these people who say like listen to sex workers they already have a preconceived opinion so it's not like they're just not judging they are judging you know they already have their opinion they only want to listen to people who say they love prostitution right and to me that's like you know, like I'm a very open-minded person. Like I have friends who have all sorts of opinions that I don't have, you know, mm-hmm. I don't get upset about a lot of things. Like there can be a lot of opinions that are just contrary to mine. And I still go like, okay, you think so fine. You know, that's my free time. I'm not working, but with prostitution, that's one thing that I really like. If a person's paying for sex or if a person thinks prostitution is good. No, I just can't with a person. Because it's such a lack of empathy. You can give them one chance. You can talk to them, like really give them the big talk and try to make Mm -hmm. them see. Mm -hmm. But if they don't want to see, like they don't want to see the suffering that's going on in there, or they even pay for it themselves. Yeah, it, it always saddens me when you know somebody and then it turns out they're like one of them. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that <laughs> after having lost all my friends. Um, oh, you lost all your friends because they were sex buyers? No, because of the trans stuff. Oh, yeah. Tell yeah. me about it. Mostly because of the trans. I mean, COVID, I think, was the last straw for them. My, my, you know, my experience of the lockdowns and COVID and how I interpret, you know, the events of the past you know, two and a half years. I think that was probably the, the last straw. But it, yeah, I mean, the trans stuff was, a, you know, a, a deal breaker for mm. every almost everyone but i think with the trans stuff it's not like us feminists who are like you know ending friendship with other people it's like them ending friendship with us yes yes the tolerance yeah yeah there was tolerance i i i kept my door i i have to say i did keep my doors open and then it started to get abusive with a couple friends like verbally and psychologically where, you know, they would announce that they would unfollow and then refollow, unfollow and refollow. They, they'd write a statement about how they couldn't believe what I was sharing. And so for that, they had to unfollow, but then they would still engage with my stuff. And I just thought, mm. help yourself. You know, it's a public account. You can look, you yeah. can not look. And then it started and then it crossed a line where it felt not good. And so I did. But these up- were friends, like you knew them personally. Since like age four, like lifelong, like wow. sisters. Yeah. Wow. Like sisters. And most people coming to me, like coaching clients, a lot of women who listen to you know the podcast mm-hmm. have par- I mean almost identical experiences across the board. It was the uh mm-hmm. Carrie Smith, she called it um the great unfriending. Yeah. The great unfriending. Um yeah. well. I'm curious, you know, because your work is about safeguarding, you know, the lives of women. I mean, in your book, you 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 mentioned that 98% of people who sell sex are women, right? So there is that is did I get right. that right? Yeah, if if it's in my book, it's probably correct. I don't have all the numbers in my head, okay. but yeah. Mm. Over the last two and a half years, like we've heard, I've heard a lot more about human trafficking and, you know, people are always, you know, making sure that 
you know, men are included and boys, it's named that that boys and men are also sold for sex, which we know is true. But according to the stats in your book, I mean, it's still a very, very small percentage. So this is predominantly a women's issue, which means that when you're talking about this, you're using the word women. Right. <laughs> so how, how, like, when did you start to come up against, you know, the gender identity stuff? I know your, your, your recent book is, um, not translated to English yet, but is all about gender identity. So when did you start to kind of come up against the trans stuff? Oh, it was by accident. It was because there was one sentence in my book and the book that you were holding right there um, that said, um, it was about, you know, it's a chapter about people who say like, we're all whores, we're all hookers, and then they're not. Like people who say, and I call this like the kind of artsy middle class, mm. which I think in the U.S. would be upper class, because I think there you call the middle classes, you mean working people. Like here we mean middle class, we mean like people who are well off. Mm. Um, but anyway, so I said they use it as a kind of like decoration. Like they're, oh, prostitution, you know, it's cool. I'll put it here, you know, stuff like that. And then I compare it to people who want to like, transcend and transgress like boundaries uh, from above like somebody from the first world who goes to like the third world and goes as a tourist and wants to you know take the culture and use the beads or whatever the hairstyles but you still bargain and you want to get you want to get the cheap price and you don't want the actual living conditions or understand fully so basically this was before like the term cultural appropriation came in so like I didn't like hadn't heard that term back then, but I was basically describing that. And then I had an example about, you know, it's like the transsexual who, who he wants everyone to call him woman, but he might not understand what being a woman is like. It was just an example. Oh man, like four years later, like in 2014, like trans movement was peaking and somebody found that phrase and like posted it all over the internet. Like, look what she said. Oh man. And it was like, like I was going to speak, I remember at the 8th of March, 2014, at this like women's conference. And then they were threatening to boycott it if I came and they were going to have an inclusive party where everyone was welcome but me, like super inclusive. Oh my like, gosh. They never got around to like organizing that party because all they did was sit around on Twitter so they don't actually do stuff. But anyway, it started then. And then everybody wanted me to like apologize. Like, this is just a mistake. Like, this is not your subject. Like, just apologize. And then, you know, you can go on with your topic. But there's just something in me that I was like, but I just don't agree. I just don't agree. <laughs> like, the more I think about it, the less I agree. <laughs> I can't say that because I don't agree. Like, I just don't think that sex is in your head. Like, I think it's an actual thing. You know, and then I just started thinking about it and thinking about it. And like, yeah. And then last year, my book came out, which is the result of that. So in, in Swedish, it's called, it's going to be called in English, like on the meaning of sex. Mm. So this is basically, it's basically the same book that everyone wrote, which I wrote at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's like a Helen Joyce and um, Kathleen Stock. And then there's a Spanish book that came out, Nobody's Born in the Wrong Body. Mm. Um, and it's funny because all our books have the same examples of like Fallon Fox and all these things. Mm -hmm. So it's basically we all wrote the same book at the same time, but different like kind of take, but it's still the same book. 
Yeah. It's great. I mean, we need we need as many books as possible at this point. Yeah. Um, wow. So you stood you stood strong and you were like, this isn't this isn't right. I mean, what did it did it did it cost you friendships? Did it cost you Oh, it's cost me two jobs. I've lost two jobs the last year over my opinions. Wow. Um, yeah, it's cost me like not so much maybe my close, close friends, but it's still like I guess you lose your trust in people mm. because ever since 2014, I've been asking everyone like, okay, if you don't agree, mm, you think I'm transphobic. Okay. Okay. Tell me like, what is transphobic and why am I this? Give me an example. No, I've still like for eight years, nobody's been ever coming to me in my face and talking to me about what is the problem. Like they all talk behind your back. They all cancel you to different events, but they don't actually engage with you and talk to you. So it's like a witch hunt. I think it's like the modern witch hunt. I mean, at this point, I don't even know if it matters what the ideology or the theory actually entails because the consequences are so disastrous for women that you could even say that this is the ideology without like them actually meaning it to be. The consequences are this. You know, it's like when you talk about the witch hunt and you read this book, The Witch Hammer, that these two priests wrote about who is the witch, how to find her, and so on and so forth. We don't have to actually read that book. You know, it's enough like what they were doing to women. And, and you know, it, it was like Sheila Jeffries told me at some point when I was in Australia, and I said, I don't understand. Like, these people are marginalized. They're not powerful. Like, she said, they're extremely powerful because if they can cancel people just by pointing them out like she's that witch she's transphobic cancel her and everybody follows without thinking they can even do it to jk rowling i mean they're extremely powerful yeah certainly like jennifer billick said this is no grassroots standing rock this is no uh this is no grassroots movement but the, the weird thing is the combination like the unholy alliance between a movement that you know is just a bunch of like 16 year olds and then you have a big industry like what she's talking about with the whole medical industry and then you have i think the desire the hidden desire which is the patriarchal desire of shutting women up of putting mm. women down of invading women's spaces of telling women we own the topic of sex you don't so we are you and we are us and you are nothing because basically what this whole theory entails is like a whole new structuring of of the world of, of space which is you have open female spaces and you have closed male spaces you have male spaces where nobody else can enter only like the the classic males not even like homosexuals anymore trans men definitely can't or won't enter in sports, they have no chance or wouldn't be allowed to because of testosterone. And then you have female spaces, which are for everyone, especially males. So it's basically, I think you have to see it like a kind of patriarchal desire that's finding a channel. Mm. You know, it's like a kind of stream, like the water is trying different ways to come. And then it found this channel. And, and then when it found it, it realized it worked. Because a man that like nurture the secret desire to like shut a woman up, 
and didn't have the arguments or didn't have the words to say it because it would just sound bad. And then he's trying with different arguments and all of a sudden he found this. Oh, she's a turf. You don't understand. Like trans women are women. And all of a sudden it works and she does have to shut up. So like the secret desire, you can so tell online, you can so tell there are so many males who've like, ah, they've found it. And what I think also you have to see it from like this perspective, like on the word woman, that's now not allowed. Male or man is still okay. You can say man, you can say male, but you can't really say woman. Mm-hmm. What I write in my book is like, if you look at history, you look at like historical archives, like historical documents, like historical books, the Bible or like the classical Greek texts and onward up until like the 1700s or so. You see the word woman is almost only used in a negative context by males to say that woman is this, woman is inferior, woman is bad, woman has no soul, she has no intellect, she's not even half of a man, she's like a man that, you know, a failed man or whatever, like there's all these texts on how bad a woman is. If somebody came back then or at the time of, you know, the fight for women's votes and said, no, actually, um... You are just a woman if you feel like it. I don't want to be a woman, so I'm not. They would just laugh in your face. Like, no woman would say, oh, actually, I have the right to vote because I feel like a man. Like, at that point, patriarchy would not accept that theory. Like, it would just be unthinkable. And we all know this, right? Mm -hmm. So then we get to, like, the past 200 years when women are reclaiming the word woman, when all of a sudden the word woman changes connotation, when all of a sudden the word woman is no longer like, oh, you're just an inferior being, but the word woman means... I am an oppressed political subject and I have the right to revolt and a woman is somehow embodied with political power, right? So it's something. And then woman took that word back. And I think you have to see this whole um, gender identity theory in the light of this, because when we took that term back, it became useless for patriarchy because we had it. So what they're doing now is they're trying to like, Uh, make it impossible for us as a political term or as any term because they don't want us to be united. They don't even want us to be able to speak about ourselves and understand our own realities. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're cutting this word up by saying, no, there's no such thing. There's only uterus bearers, menstruators, whatnot. They're cutting it up. They're fragmenting it. They're making it mean it's opposite namely now woman means also man so it becomes completely meaningless they're making it taboo they're removing it from all sorts of contexts they're making it problematic and by doing so they're basically you know pulling the rug out from any type of women's movement or even thinking about women's situation or reflecting on our situation as a whole so this is no small thing And this has nothing to do with trans or whatever. Like, this is just an excuse, you know? Mm-hmm. This is the old male-female war. Mm. And it won't change. It's still the same. Yeah. What do you think has been effective, you know, for you personally and in your work 
you know, let's just take the past two years or are you feeling like totally defeated and fed up? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it depends on what moment you would ask, I guess, you know, it doesn't matter if you write books, if people who, who already made up their mind, don't read them. The prostitution issue is not as bad as the gender identity issue because the prostitution issue is a lot older so you still have like everybody in society knows what it's about like they know what prostitution is so it's still a kind of a democratic debate in that sense Mm -hmm. like any guy can have an opinion like whereas the gender identity thing you get like between the people that are like gender identity proponents and like no, trans women are women, like, shut up, like, you're canceled, bye. And then you have the people who are, like, agree with you, but are like, but this isn't a big issue, like, who cares about that? Right. Like, why do you spend time on this? Like, you have climate change and, you know, economic crisis, and why don't you focus on this? And, you know, so so these people are not doing anything and, and kind of don't engage, or they're just scared and say, I don't know enough, I can't say anything. And I think that's kind of the dilemma about the whole issue that, Mm. yeah, the people that care are like the wrong people. So, right. And there's the, uh, a friend said this to me, there was like the, there's the spirit of um, like, it's, it's taboo to say that there is like a truth or like a reality, you know, we always have to kind of, or like I was speaking when I was more entrenched in like leftist feminism, liberal feminism, whatever you want to call it. I was very like tiptoe. I was always tiptoeing like, well, 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 from my experience, you know, I've seen this or yeah. I think this, but I understand if that's not your experience or like mm-hmm. my truth versus your truth um, as if, you know, there is a reality where men can become women and women can become yeah. men. Right. So I think that the, also the way that we've been socialized as women at this point in time, or at least I'll say how, yeah, how I was socialized was to. Um, see that there's always a middle ground. There's there's always two sides to the story, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, like that kind of um, like it's just it, like the the illusion of a kind of like a critical mind or critical thinking. Um, but actually that actual that results in material like harm. And that's yeah. that's the thing that I think often gets so lost with, you know, whether it's prostitution, surrogacy trans ideology as you said you know earlier i think you said the the um the kind of the tangibility like it's one thing to read about it it's one thing to see it and experience it and we could say the same i could say the same of industrial birth and until you you see it or you are in close proximity to it it's all you know they have the advantage of it all remaining in this postmodern like paradise yeah 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 I mean, the thing is, as a Marxist, because you know, I'm a Marxist and a materialist, like we don't look at things like my experience is is the truth. Right. You know, we look at things like there is an objective reality. Then your experience is is one way of finding out about that reality. But you know, you need the map and the compass because you know, if you're standing on top of a mountain, you know, things will look a certain way. Yeah, if you're standing in a valley, things will look a different way. You can't, you know, generalize from your personal experience. You don't mm-hmm. know if you're the one percent. You don't know if you're the exception, or you might be the rule. You don't know. So you need theory, you need statistics, you need to understand the whole, and then you can place your own experience in that mm-hmm. to understand where you're situated. Of course, you need your own experience, but that, mm-hmm. you know, that will be kind of like secondary. Um, yeah, like that can be the compass, but it can't be the the map. You know, you need mm-hmm. both. So, I mean, 
I don't know. I think it's difficult today to be like, uh, as I am, you know, a Marxist feminist, because there are very few left. And either they're going to the right or they're going to this postmodern paradise, as you said. And we don't really have anyone. Hmm. Because, you know, the left that I was brought up in was a kind of material kind of class-based feminist materialist left. I mean, there was nothing else back then. All these ideas hadn't come around. So of course, when you said woman, you meant woman. I mean, who else would you mean? <laughs> so, so now like all of a sudden I see a lot of like old comrades have changed and now adopted this new, new like gender identity theory. But I'm like, you calling me transfer for something you used to believe 10 years ago. Like I'm just standing where I always stood. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And it's weird because we're ending up, we're being canceled by the left. I can't join the right because I don't agree with them on so many other issues. You know? So yeah, where do we belong? It's really difficult. What I think is really sad that they're selling the idea that you can actually change sex. I think that's the saddest thing. I think they're fooling trans people. I think trans people are like the biggest victims of gender identity ideology because you are not told what it really means and what's going to happen with your body and especially for females because you can't really construct a functioning penis so you will be half a man and I think yeah maybe in terms of like feminism if you actually could construct a big ass functioning dick to like take over the world with you know then men would be scared of this right like they wouldn't be endorsing it (laughs) yeah they'd be like oh my god no they're completely (laughs) you know but nowadays it doesn't you know for as yet it doesn't work so you'd be like a woman below and a man above you'll pass as a man in public space but not an intimacy you know and I think that's really sad that they're not actually talking more about like what can you actually do with your body and what can't be done because, you know, I've talked to so many trans people from my book who end up feeling so lonely and who are just abandoned by all these allies, mm. you know, after having transitioned, nobody cares anymore after you start feeling depressed, after your new sex organ isn't working at all, whether you are male or female, it's mm-hmm. so risky. So very often you get stuck with all these problems, all these consequences, you know, mm. um, this neo-vagina might not work. And then what do you do? Like, it's just really difficult. And this is something that these supposed allies don't care about. They don't care at all. Well, yeah, because it starts to crumble. Mm. The ideology starts to crumble. I mean, I don't even use the, I don't even say trans people anymore or use the word transition anymore. I mean, I I will if I'm like, depending on who I'm speaking to. What will you say then if somebody's gone through the whole like procedure? I'll say I'll, I describe what's happened. So I'll say a man who's taken estrogen for four years and had silicone breasts implanted onto his chest and may or may not have had his penis removed. That takes five his, minutes, though. <laughs> I know, but I, it's what I have to do to retain my like sanity and honestly, like my dignity. Like I will not say that a man can be any kind of version of a woman. I mean, even, you know, even the distinction trans woman is not enough for me. Right. Because we know that it suggests that there's a subcategory of woman, that there's this other kind of impersonation, you know, woman. Um, And I think that's how we ended up like, you know, all the euphemisms, all of the lexicon. 
it's mm. its function is to like confuse us. So when you say tr- you spoke to a trans person, I have no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. No, what I meant is I've spoken to a lot of people who have transitioned, and I yeah. mean like done the whole medicalized. Thing. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't mean people who just got an idea in their head and walked out and said I'm this or I'm that. You know. No, I mean, people who are now stuck in their body that they have after transitioning, who can't go back because you've taken something away that you can't get back. Like, for example, a penis, you threw it like in the garbage. You can't get it back. You can't put it back on. It's gone. Yeah. And you realize, shit, shit, what have I done? And then who is there for you? Like this whole big movement. Totally. Like you are the star of the day. Everybody's talking about trans this, trans that. And then you are trans. You should be like, everybody should be caring about you. Nobody cares. That's a sad thing. Oh, yeah, they're totally preyed upon. I mean, I, I think I also talk about it differently. Like uh, the, the the adult men, I wouldn't say necessarily are preyed upon, you know, as much as a adole- an adolescent girl. You know, there are all the distinctions with, you know, within who is preyed upon, who is yeah. uh, using this this opportunity to invade women's spaces. So there's so much. Yeah, I also I feel like you have to differ between like gay men and heterosexual. Absolutely. Men. Absolutely. Yeah. Like gay men, a lot of them, they're not interested in women's spaces. Like they just want to like look good and, and, and try to get guys to like them. But like the, the heterosexual males that do it, you know, mm-hmm. generally like I, have their own mindset that they had before that they keep on having, like, they're not interested yeah. in men. They're interested in us. I, so I used to hold that belief. Like I, I used to also see gay men as not as threatening, which m- might be true in terms of like, you know, mm the potential of raping a woman if, if he's yeah. not interested in sex you know, in, in her in a sexual way but i get written to and i got I, I work with women who have had um gay trans identified men uh invade their women's circles um con them into friendships con them into uh all sorts of professional alliances under the guise that they are women um, and totally take advantage and lie to them and manipulate them and humiliate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying because you're gay, you're a good person. Right, Obviously, right, right. most people are, are good or bad, whatever, like you want to call them and, yeah. and people do whatever they can. What I'm trying to say is like, there is not that. There's a distinction. Type of energy that a heterosexual male will have that he will go in and like actively kind of yeah seek women and and have have that interest of being with women for a sexual reason like yeah yes yeah yeah like the boundary like they're they're both willing to violate boundaries it's just a matter of which boundaries they're you know each of them are are willing to most people want to violate boundaries if they can (laughs) it's nuts yeah but when you do it to them it's like oh my god no We have nothing to give up. I mean, what can we, you know, we are not in a position of power. Like, what can we, you know, what what can we even take from them? <laughs> Genevieve Gluck talked to, like, mentioned this on one of our episodes where she she was like, the men are always putting on. They're always getting stuff added on. I mean, a very small percentage of these men actually cut their penises off. It's mostly that they're adding on to, whereas the women are removing. They're having things taken off. Like Isn't that interesting? Mm. right yeah like because the heterosexual male most of the time he's not going to want to take his dick off the, no. the gay male he might want to do this but the heterosexual male usually doesn't i think right? it's less so than 10 10 of the men big distinction. Will get this bottom surgery or 
sorry. Mm. See, there I go using the euphemism again. Will have his penis yeah, surgically yeah. removed. Yeah, yeah. I noticed this euphemisms and in, in surrogacy as well. We haven't talked a lot about it, but like mm-hmm. when I was researching surrogacy forums for surrogates, mm-hmm. yeah, they would also use all these like mm, terms not to say they had a baby taken away from them. Mm-hmm. Like they actually gave birth to baby. Like they would say they would have these like abbreviations and ways to talk around it. And they would never say my child, it would be their child. Like their child is going to be born, you know? And uh, I think it's a defense mechanism. It's a way of like not seeing the pain. And I mean, I don't say that we should never use defense mechanisms. Like mm-hmm. things can be painful. We don't ha- always have to confront the pain every day. I mean, right. but sometimes when it becomes like a structure, and you see that you're using it to hide something that like you don't want to see that you might have to see yeah it's problematic well well i've i've really so enjoyed this this conversation i mean you've got my my head spinning and i i just really appreciate you and and the work that you're doing in the world and um, so excited to hear that you have, you know, your, your recent book is going to be translated to English soon. And is there anything we didn't get to that you feel like is at the forefront of your mind or anything that uh-huh. you want to expand on more? Oh, there are so many things, but you know, we can, yeah, I'll send you the book when it comes and we can talk again. I would so love that. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time.